Hi, I'm Dave Westberg, and you're listening to Billboard Insider Podcast, where I interview industry leaders about trends impacting the U.S. out-of-home advertising business. This podcast is sponsored by Adomni. Adomni, increase your revenue today by listing your digital billboard on Adomni. Today's guest is Steve Haggard, the president and CEO of Metro Phoenix Bank, an Arizona-headquartered bank which makes loans to out-of-home advertising companies. Welcome to the show, Steve. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Steve, talk a little bit about Metro Bank, what it is, and how it got involved in lending to out-of-home advertising companies. Sure, sure. Well, Metro Phoenix Bank, we are active in the space of outdoor media lending, and uh, we have actually been involved with that particular asset class since inception. The bank started in 2007 as a commercial bank in the Phoenix market. We were founded by local investors, local business owners, and fortunately, some of these business owners happen to be involved heavily in the outdoor media industry. On our board of directors, we have people that are involved in the steel manufacturing side, the fabrication side, as well as an outdoor media owner-operator with a portfolio of uh, billboards. So from a starting point, you know, we had the industry knowledge. We had the what we considered the expertise to go into a space that was a little bit atypical for most banks, but we were progressive. We felt like it was an open playbook, if you will, in terms of conventional commercial lending, and it has just evolved. And for the last 12 years, we've had a lot of success. We have a lot of clientele. And fortunately, we are now at a stage where we are going nationwide. And that's been a really good last two years, I guess, in terms of growth. So industry expertise obviously was a driving factor as to why we got into it. But coming out of the Phoenix industry, outdoor media has always been a big part of our landscape. Obviously, there have been some major, major players come out of the Phoenix market. So if you were in lending at any time over the last 40 years, you probably ran across the likes of Artie Moreno or Carl Eller, Bill Levine, and these were all major, major catalysts for the outdoor industry. And we've just seen it evolve to the stage where it is today with the digital, the wallscapes, and the other types of media that fall into this particular asset class. Now, am I right? If I were to give a financial snapshot of the bank, 200 to 300 million in assets, you've been profitable, 11% return on equity, well-capitalized, capital's about 20% of assets. That is a reasonable snapshot? Yeah, yeah, that that is accurate. We are financially sound. We've got a fortress balance sheet. We're pushing 300 million, probably the strongest capitalized bank in the state of Arizona. And that is by design because we are a commercial bank. You know, there are elements of risk in commercial lending that's a little bit different than consumer lending or retail lending. And therefore, we want that backstop with additional capital. So profitable, yes, the last five years for Metro Phoenix Bank has been substantially stronger than probably the 2007 through 2010 era. When we went through the Great Recession, we came out of that hole. We've recapitalized the bank, and now we're, you know, hitting all six cylinders and doing quite well. As a lender, you you mentioned out-of-home is a little bit of an atypical space. It seems like lenders do a real good job with sectors, with hard assets. Out-of-home has a lot of the values intangible. As a lender, what's your view of out-of-home and what what are the characteristics of -of out-of-home that have made you comfortable with it? Yeah, it is atypical, but it's only atypical, I think, from the standpoint that you don't look behind the curtain. And, you know, we've obviously been able to take our time because of the support that we have on the board and really 
you know, getting to understand the nuances of the industry. And, and I, I always look at it as kind of a hybrid asset class. It's got some of the benefits of what a real estate play would have, and it's got some of the benefits of what an operating company would have. It's got some tangible component to it, but you're right. There is some intangible nature to the transaction. But when we go into these particular loan opportunities, we are usually going into a long-term land lease situation or a perpetual easement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you look at these and do they have all the bundle of rights in a real estate play? No, they don't, but they've got enough to get us perfected for a period of time that we know that cash flow is going to be sustainable. And so we like it because it does act and feel like real estate, but it actually has a cash flow stream that's very slim, similar to an operating company. And because of that, we feel like we get the best of both worlds versus the weaknesses of both worlds. And it's, you know, it's an industry, you've got to do it right. You've got to protect the collateral in a way that is going to protect you over the long haul. And there are some steps along the way that if you don't hit right, you could basically end up with something you don't, you know, openly want. But if you take a deliberate approach and perfection of the collateral and you're dealing with operators that are seasoned, that have a, a good history to them, that the character is there and they're in markets that are at least growing to a certain degree, mm -hmm. I think you would be fine. And the banks in general, you know, they stay away from it because it's relatively atypical as it is compared to a real estate play. But we're kind of falling into that middle area between the two, what we call C&I loan versus a real estate loan. So we are bullish about the industry. You know, am I right? One other thing I like about the business is it's not a one-of-a-kind business model. You look at an out-of-home advertising company in Arizona it will have many of the a bulletin company, for instance. It will have many of the same characteristics of a bulletin company in Indiana, which will have many of the same characteristics of a bulletin company even in Times Square. Now there may be nuances. Leases may be higher in Times Square. Rents may be higher in Times Square. Revenue may be higher in Times Square. But this is not a one of a kind business model. One company looks like another, looks like another, and I've got to think as a lender where you're constantly having to evaluate how does this borrower compare to that one or this borrower compared to the industry, it helps you get comfortable. Yeah, there is not one of a kind, but some of the fundamentals of lending are one of a kind and they're consistent. And so when you underwrite a transaction, there's certain fundamentals yes. that will be consistent, whether you're in Times Square, Miami, Dallas, yes. or Ohio. It sometimes come into play how the real estate relationship works between the landlord and the tenant mm -hmm. and you know how the sign works relative to the real estate. And, and so once you understand the nuances of each individual market, you know, you get down to the, the brass taxes and mm -hmm. that's, okay, how do I perfect this piece of collateral? And how do I do it in a way that's going to be compatible for both the lender and the borrower, as well as the landlord? And you navigate through that and you get to the end result, and that is a long-term income stream that's going to repay the loan that we're going to provide that borrower. And our objective, obviously, is never to own these uh, pieces of assets. Our, our objective, obviously, is to get repaid on a loan. But at the same token, just like any lender, if we do run into a snag and our borrower you know, falls short, we've got to be able to step in and basically have a seamless transition from the point that we take it over and ultimately would want to liquidate that asset. And so that's the last case scenario, mm -hmm. but it is one that's important to any lender, especially if we're going out long. And when we go out long, we 
could be looking at a 10-year, 15-year deal, hmm. and we want to ensure that we've got that sustainability for that duration. So it is it is different in each market. You're right, yes. Dave, but at the same token, fundamentals of lending do not change whether we're in New York or Phoenix. There are enough similarities, you're right, between out-of-home companies that you can evaluate. And maybe there's nuances to each market, but I, I couldn't agree more. I always say in, in my lending business, we want to avoid one-of-a-kind business models because if a, a one-of-a-kind business, some little niche little business, if it's broken, I don't know how to fix it. If it's a Bolton company, it's broken. I know how to fix it. One company is like another Correct. is like another. What are some of the risks, in your view, of lending to the out-of-home business? My opinion on it is very similar to whether we're lending to a, a company that makes widgets, a real estate developer, or out-of-home business, you know, the character of the borrower. So we want to go create relationships with operators that have experience, that have had success over the years, that are in markets that we believe are growing markets and not dying markets. And so if you talk to any lender, usually the character is going to be first and foremost. We're not a collateral-based lender. We're a cash flow lender and a character lender. If we get those first two steps uh, addressed, then we move into the collateral and figure out, okay, what are we looking at from a collateral perspective? And then when we get into the collateral, it's perfection. I think Without a doubt, the learning curve on perfection of collateral in the outdoor media industry took some time in terms of figuring out what was the best avenue to take, mm -hmm. but we think we're there. We think we can navigate through some of the different nuances between these different markets. So collateral perfection with the lease agreements, estoppel certificates, and assignments, and SNDAs, those are all key components of doing this business right. But going back to that first comment, and that is, you know, the character and experience of the operator. If it's a newbie coming out of the gate, they don't have any experience, and it's a startup operation, it's probably not a good fit for Metro Phoenix Bank. But if it's someone that has got some years under their belt, they're looking to expand, they want to basically acquire another company, they want to take out a partner, or they want to convert a bunch of static signs to digital signs, those are the type of scenarios that we're seeing on our plate on a day-to-day -day basis. Let's take a break here for a word from our sponsor. Adomni easily connects with Dactronics, Formedco, PrismView, or Watchfire billboards and enables advertisers and agencies to quickly find and buy your unsold billboard space. With Audience IQ technology, advertisers can target consumer profiles such as demographics, behavior, and interests that travel past your billboards. Join the fastest-growing out-of-home network with over 100,000 digital screens. Visit adomni.com or email sales at adomni.com to learn more. Mention this Billboard Insider podcast to receive one free year of Adomni's white-labeled booking engine on your website. Steve, I have to agree with you that character is critical in out-of-home. I, I can think of really there's two kinds of ways out-of-home companies get into trouble. One way is where you basically have a crook involved. I think of, was it Don McCord and DigiMedia in D.C.? I can think of a couple other cases where money doesn't get used the way it's supposed to. It gets siphoned off or whatever. That's one way. And then the second way, though, is it's a leveraged business. And if a company gets upside down, I mean, the, the biggest public case of this is Clear Channel Outdoor, which geared up in a huge leverage buyout just before the last recession, and it became a zombie iHeart and Clear Channel for really five or six years, and is just now beginning to emerge from that. So 
how what in your view as a lender is uh, prudent debt capacity for an out-of-home company that will keep it out of trouble in and out of business cycles debt to worth ratios that is a very key component of our underwriting process we're going to take a look at the financials of the company and there are certain levels of debt that we consider to be excessive and we start to you know pull back a little bit in terms of trying to make it work and leverage is good i mean mm-hmm. that we're in the business of lending and we want to lend and we want to basically provide growth debt for these companies but it can get out of hand like you said with clear channel obviously mm-hmm. that took it over the top and we know that firsthand we're actually in the building with clear channel here in phoenix arizona <laughs> and when all that started to go down i saw their yeah they have to get cut in half and wow. people were obviously losing their jobs so it was a bad you know result but yes they are recovering and it's obviously a good sign but when we look at these companies we go up to three to four mm-hmm. times debt to worth ratio what we feel like you, you mean debt to cash flow or, yeah, uh, no, not debt service, oh. uh, debt to worth. Okay. Yeah, so debt to worth. And so this would be debt to worth. And basically, if my liabilities were 10, yeah. you know, maybe my net equity net worth would be, you know, at three or four. Yes, yes. So it's called a debt to worth ratio. Yep. And three to one to four to one mm-hmm. is kind of a sweet spot that we feel comfortable with. And, and once again, this is on a cost basis. And what we are seeing, obviously, is that the valuation, obviously, side of these operations are substantially greater. Mm -hmm. You know, when you go out and do an appraisal or market value assessment on their assets, they're typically going to be in a lot stronger position than what would be on a financial statement provided by the company. But that said, we look at a debt to worth ratio, Mm -hmm. three to four times is something that we can get arms around. And then on a debt service coverage ratio that you were referring Mm -hmm. to earlier, we're looking at about a 1.5 times coverage. And so if we start dropping below 1.5 times debt Mm -hmm. service coverage, we look for mitigating strengths, if you will, or or factors that say, okay, it is a 1.5 or it's dropping down to 135, Mm -hmm. but we've got a strong guarantor. We've got a great market. Our loan to value from a collateral position is, you know, 50%. Mm -hmm. So there are some mitigating circumstances that we would, you know, allow ourselves to go and underwrite something below a 1.5 times debt service coverage ratio. And once again, every deal is different. Let's go to the debt service coverage. So really what you're saying is you want the cash flow in the business to be exceeding the debt payments they're making to you, the company's making to you by 50%. So where that's important is what that means is you're underwriting to companies so that cash flow could decline by 50% before a company defaults on its loan to you and you know you look at what's happened in a garden variety recession cash flow will not go down 50% maybe it'll go down 10% so you're underwriting basically to be resilient through a recession it sounds like that is exactly right i mean there is a cushion built in there and that cushion obviously is at a little bit higher level than yes. traditional commercial lending on you know traditional commercial yes. lending you're looking at a 125 to 135 yes. debt service coverage coverage ratio but this industry is a little bit atypical and so we do bump it up a little bit and at 15 we always feel like we've got the extra coverage that's necessary to backstop a bump in the road in terms of the economy You've talked before in Billboard Insider about wanting to see a 60 to 70 percent loan to value. And now will you back that value by using an appraisal or will you look at just sort of your own sense of industry comps? How do you determine value when you're value of a company when you're underwriting a loan? 
we do both, Dave. Mm-hmm. So when we're initially starting the underwriting process, we always do what we call an internal check to see where we're going to come out or potentially come out based on our knowledge of the industry and the information provided by the borrower. And then we'll kind of test the waters with the borrower and say, hey, we're looking at this and you know, we think this thing is going to value at $5 million and that's going to give us a, an acceptable loan value ratio that's going to mm-hmm. provide X amount for the loan. Mm-hmm. Are you comfortable proceeding? Mm-hmm. And if everybody's comfortable proceeding, that's when we go out and engage a, a full-blown appraisal. And those appraisals aren't cheap. Mm-hmm. We've got five or six different people throughout the country that will utilize for valuations. Mm-hmm. But that's a prudent step for us to go out and get a third-party independent valuation to support what we're coming up with or identifying something in there that's a little bit a problem or, Mm -hmm. you know, a potential weakness that we weren't aware of in our underwriting. And so we do do both. We do the first internal check just to make sure we're all on the same page that our LOI or terms letter makes sense to what they want and what we want. And if everybody agrees with it, we'll say, okay, you know, let's proceed. We're going to collect a check for the appraisal and we're going to move forward. Mm -hmm. And then we'll go out and engage a, a professional to do the real appraisal. You mentioned in terms of underwriting, character is very important. Wanting to be in a good market with growing revenue, that's important. What about financials and a business's financial reporting? It depends. If it's a company that's got a plant of 350 faces and they're doing 20 million in revenue, our expectation is that the financial reporting will be proportionate with the size of the revenue stream in the company. So the the more growth there is to the revenue and financial structure, the higher expectation and the quality of the financial. And that may mean, you know, we're looking for maybe a CPA compiled statement, sometimes even an audited statement. Mm-hmm. But we will accept in-house financials. We do do book type uh, underwriting. And, you know, as long as we believe the integrity of the financials being provided are acceptable and they tie to the tax returns, you know, we can get away with what we call lower quality financial reporting. But it's just prudent as a business grows and they generate more and more in revenue and opportunities. The expectation is that they're growing in terms of the financial integrity of the operation too. And so a CPA compilation and audited statement may be requested if the company is of size. Mm -hmm. Now, walk me through a typical, when you issue an out-of-home term sheet, walk me through typical out-of-home terms, size, price, and collateral, what sort of amortization. Walk me through some of the typical market terms for you guys. I don't want to say anything is ever typical, but we're starting to see our range get a little bit more what I call range bound. Mm -hmm. So we're in a space right now, Dave, that we're probably looking at our average deal size, I'd say three to 5 million. Mm -hmm. Now that said, we've done transactions as low as Mm 300,000 and we've done them as high as 12 million. And so we do have, you know, experience in doing some of the smaller dollar deals and experience in doing some of the little bit larger deals. But our sweet spot right now would probably be three to 5 million. Mm -hmm. And the typical type of transaction is a 15 to 20 year amortization. We will usually have a 10 year balloon Mm -hmm. and we are seeing rates some of them are variable rate that are floaters. You know, maybe the negotiation is such that they want a floater rate at a lower, you know, starting rate, mm-hmm. or they want to fix it. But if we're fixing deals right now, we're we're, we're fixing deals 
in the high fives right now on average. Mm -hmm. Um, So prime right now is four, seven, five. I'd say it's safe to say that our average deal is probably prime one, which would be five, seven, five. Mm -hmm. And anywhere from a point and a quarter to two points on the origination fees. Mm -hmm. And that once again, depends on the risk of the transaction and maybe sometimes the size and monthly payment, monthly P&I payments. Mm -hmm. You know, when I say we amortize 15 to 20 years, that is if the lease arrangement is such that it's a long-term lease or if they own the real estate or or there's a perpetual easement. So if they've got short-term leases in play, mm-hmm. you know, they're not going to be seeing a long-term amortization from the bank. So we've got to match what the lease terms are. Would it be fair to say your amortization, you'd want to have your amortization less than the weighted average remaining life of a company's leases? In other words, if they are short yeah, leases? 100%. Yeah, yeah, that's what I figured. Yeah, 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 exactly. So if they're, you know, if you look at their plant and yeah. all their leases are... 8.5 years, the weighted average, Yes, we're probably going to be looking at an eight-year amortization. Yep. So that, that is exactly the intuitive process that we go through. How do you actually collateralize a loan? In other words, how are you perfecting your security interest in a company? Multiple ways. Sometimes we are taking a deed of trust. If it is, if it is real estate you know, transaction, we will basically take a deed of trust. If it's a perpetual easement, we will file a lien on perpetual easement, and that sometimes feels and acts like a real estate play. Mm-hmm. If it's a lease, we'll take an assignment of the lease. We'll basically file a UCC on the FF&E or the, you know, the, the fixtures and the assets, and there are many times where we're basically getting a, a assignment of the permit or basically filing a UCC on the permit as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And so it all depends on what the nuances are of the municipality we may be working on. I know there are situations where we've got to file with the ADOT and Department of Transportation. Mm-hmm. So it, it really is dependent on the structure of the outdoor asset to begin with. But, you know, let's just say it's a lease transaction. Yeah, we'll do a sign on a lease. We'll get a stop certificate with the landlord. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we do have an SMDA requirement if the lease agreement doesn't call out assignment provisions. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to take that extra step to get that perfected. And then we'll do the UCC filing, whether it's a county or state, depending on the state that we're in. So it's all over the board, Dave. And mm-hmm. there's no, you know routine, if you will, because everybody's got a little bit different structure that comes to mind. And and even in some certain municipalities, you gotta file something with the municipality, I believe mm-hmm, it's in mm-hmm. the Sunset, you know, Strip Boulevard. They've got some additional municipality assignments that have to be perfected. And so you've got to really dive into that particular market you're going into to figure out how those assets need to be perfected and try not to, you know, misstep along the way to ensure that you're okay when it's all said and done. What about personal guarantees? Nine out of 10 times, I would say that we're going to request it. Now, sometimes there's negotiations and we are a pretty progressive lender. So if you've got a compelling argument as to why you don't need a guarantee, we're, we're going to listen to you. But nine out of 10 times, we're going to say, no, we want it. And, mm-hmm. and so let me give you an example. If someone comes to the table and they throw a whole plan of assets to us for collateral, and then we're looking at a very, very low, low loan to value or advance rate, mm-hmm. and it's got exceptional cash flow, these are great locations, and it's been in operation for you know 20 years, okay, we're going to at least listen to that particular argument. But usually out of the gate, we're going to be looking for a guarantee. But there have been situations where they've been 
been a little bit more of a corporate type of structure where there's not a mm-hmm. primary shareholder, if you will, or mm-hmm. a principal that's going to be a 20% owner that will step up and guarantee a transaction. But most of the transactions we see are, I don't want to call them mom and pops, but operators of a family or a group of individuals that are all involved in the day-to-day operations of the company, and therefore they're not going to be opposed to stepping up and guaranteeing it. We have been up and to the right in the economy for 10 plus years. There's a whole generation of business people out there that have never seen a recession. Where are we in the business cycle? What's your take? Man, I've been uh, asked that for the last few years, and I keep saying that, you know, next year is going to be a slowdown year, and, we, yeah. you know, we're proved wrong each year. Yeah. But our bank is obviously young enough that we're, you know, still glowing and glowing, but we have a short memory back to 2008, 9, and 10 when mm-hmm. the last recession hit, and it's still near and dear to our memories around the board table. We're cautious about it. We we think that the market is good. We think opportunities still exist for growth and prosperous success. But at the same token, we believe that we're kind of hitting the top. I mean, Mm -hmm. the the opportunities are diminishing and probably rate. I think we're going to see some setbacks along the way here, and that Mm -hmm. may be, you know, post election. Mm-hmm. But this cannot go on forever. These growth rates that we've experienced over the last seven, eight years are tremendous. We have all taken advantage of it, which has been good for the banking industry and mm-hmm. other industries. But at the same token, we're very cautious about how much steam remains. And uh, with that said, you know, we're taking a little bit more of a d- deliberate approach mm-hmm. in how we're lending. We're a little bit more cautious in our projections. We're taking everything and taking the next step in terms of the support documentation and underwriting. As you indicated, when mm-hmm. times are good like this, this is when the fraud comes out of the yes. woodwork. People yes. take advantage of people getting loose with their underwriting yes. or believing everything that they see that's being put in front of them. Yeah. We're, we're not doing that. We're, we're looking at everything with still a cautious perspective and saying, okay, worst case scenario, what could happen here? I think 2020, though, should be very similar to 2019, but post-election, I really believe that we're going to start seeing a little bit more cracks in the armor in terms of the steam in the economy and maybe a little bit more of a slowdown. Now, that said, I think there's enough controls in place based on experience from 2008 and 2009 that it's not going to be a disaster like we experienced at that point, but it is something that it's just the natural evolution of our economic cycle that you're going to have some periods of recession and setbacks. And I think just the law of averages, it's going to happen sooner than later, and you just got to prepare for it. And Phoenix, you know, this is our primary market. I think we were hit hard by the last recession. We were slow to recovery, and it's been a slow, methodical recovery, which is obviously good for us now. But I think when we make our adjustment here in the Phoenix and Arizona market, it's going to be a very manageable adjustment relative to what we saw in 2008 and 91 and 92 when the RTC days were, you know, the, 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 the rage at that time. But it's 
anyone's ball game. I mean, it's really crazy to say that we're talking about this in 2020 when we started talking <laughs> about it in probably 2017. But I know, I know. It is what it is. But any anytime someone says this time is different or we're in a new we're in a new environment, we're never going to have another recession. It's like that's about the time where you say, okay, now it's going to happen next year. So uh, that's that's <laughs> yeah. something I've learned from the last couple. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks for appearing on the show, Steve. Well, it's my pleasure, Dave. And if there's anything that we can help you with, uh, please give us a call. We've got a dedicated team to lending in, in the outdoor media. We're nationwide now. And I really think there's going to be some good things in 2020 between Metro Phoenix Bank and the outdoor media industry. Let's end there. If I want to learn more about Metro Phoenix's lending, out-of-home lending, who should I contact? Yeah, our dedicated senior lender on that is Ricard Strom. And he can be reached here at 602-346-1800. Or you're more than welcome to go to our website, which is metrophoenixbank.com. And we've got a section in there that talks about our outdoor media lending. Perfect. This podcast was edited by Lucas Jones and sponsored by Adomni. Adomni. Increase your revenue today by listing your digital billboard on Adomni. You can listen to episodes of the Billboard Insider podcast by visiting BillboardInsider.com or by subscribing to the Billboard Insider podcast on iTunes or any of the usual podcast outlets. Our email is BillboardInsider at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'll be back in a couple weeks.